Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar podcast for June 26, 2013, from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speaker this month was Dr. Martin Chrislieb and Dr. Ruth Travis, who spoke to us on coffee and cancer, and how do we know for sure. This event was to celebrate the centenary of the Medical Research Council. We hope you enjoy. So we need to talk about Sir Austin Bradford Hill, which is not a name that gets attention but it's definitely a name that should get more attention and to introduce him I think we need to to introduce uh, Bradford Hill we need to have a think about what causes disease and certainly for a lot of human history people have written off causes of diseases as capricious gods and evil sorcerers and malevolent spirits and things but I think one of the first systematic causes of disease that comes down to us is, is gifted to us by a man called Galen, who's, uh, who's living in the classical era. So I've got here 130 to 200 AD as his lifespan. And we get from him the idea of the theory of humours, the idea that a body is, is, is in balance, uh, is a balance between four fluids, black bile, yellow bile, blood and phlegm. And in the context of cancer, because I work for the Department of Oncology, uh, he highlights an excess of black bile as being the cause of things like melancholia, depression, in a, if it's generally in excess in the body. But he highlights the idea that local examples of black bile, localised, concentrated examples of black bile, give us a disease that we would now call cancer. As an, as an aside, I think he throws out... Uh, there's no point trying to cure this one because the black bile will just come back. And it's about 1,700, 1,800 years before people start putting Galen back in his box and saying, hang on a minute, this is, this is nonsense. We can't be dealing with this. And in the context of understanding how disease gets started, the, 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 next, the next man on the sheet of paper, if you've got a, a handout in front of you, is a man called Heinrich Koch. And Koch puts forward a set of postulates about how you demonstrate what causes a disease. And he, I think one of the things he's looking at is diseases like tuberculosis. And what he says is, if you want to put something forwards as the cause of a disease, I want you to prove it. And I'm going to ask you to prove it by passing a set of milestones. So I'm going to ask you to take a, a diseased organism or a diseased person and I'm going to ask you to isolate from that disease tissue the thing that's causing the problem. And I'm going to ask you to show that you can't see it or isolate it from a healthy person. I'm going to ask you to take that disease-causing thing and culture it or grow it in a lab. And I'm going to ask you to put that isolated bug or that isolated cause back into a healthy person or animal and cause the same disease that you had observed previously. And then I'm going to ask you to re-isolate the cause from that second-generation diseased animal or person and show that the bug that you isolate from the second diseased person is pretty much the same as the bug you isolated from the first diseased person. It's quite a stern set of tests, but they are still in use, I think. The problem with them is they won't cut it with cancer because it doesn't make sense to talk about culturing and growing in a lab, something like benzene. And in any case, the causes of cancer can be separated from the actual experience of the disease by decades. So Koch postulates won't work. We need a different way of thinking about how you, how you introduce something like a cause for cancer. And the guy on the fourth page of the handout, if you've got one, is, is the man who we now credit as giving us a framework for understanding what causes cancer. And his name was Austin Bradford Hill. He was, medically medically research me sorry. He was a medical research council-funded scientist. He worked in Britain in the mid-20th mid century. And he gave a lot of thought to cancer and a lot of thought to complex diseases. So this would apply to something like Alzheimer's, dementia as well. And he said, it's difficult to look at cancer and have a cause, but... I'm going, to, I'm going to write down a, a framework and that framework is going to be your guide to producing the case for the prosecution. So the first thing we need to do is establish that the association between the cause and the disease is strong. So for example, if we, if we think about smoking and lung cancer, 
smokers can have anything between a 9 and 30 times higher risk of getting lung cancer than the general population. That's a strong association. We're not talking about they're a little bit more likely. It's a powerful, strong association. We want the association to be consistent. If you think that Brits smoke and die of lung cancer, then you'd want to see that Americans smoke, they die the same as Brits. If the Chinese smoke like the British, do the Chinese die like the British? If women smoke like men, do they die like men? So you want it to be consistent. You want the same result again and again. Ideally, it's nice if it's specific. So we would like, from, Bra from uh, Bradford Hill's criteria, we would like to see that, for example, smokers get lung cancer, and they get lung cancer more than the general population. Hopefully they get... Otherwise, they're generally the same as the the general population. Now, of course, you can already start to see some trouble brewing because we know that smokers get other things besides lung cancer. So again, we're just starting to see the idea that Hill's criteria are not rules. You can't tick them off like a box. They're a guideline to producing a case against something. They're not an absolute rule. If we look at the second, the, second, uh, the second row of that, unless you're in possession of one of those little blue police boxes... We want the cause to predate the disease. So we need the cause to happen and then the disease. And that sounds really obvious, but you can imagine a situation in which people who are smoking are getting lung cancer, but that actually the lung cancer is causing them to smoke, that the smoking is alleviating a symptom of lung cancer. And so if you just look at a population and see an association between smoking and lung cancer, you really need to know that the smoking happened first. We want to see a, grade, a graduated progression. Do people who smoke more have a higher risk? Do people who smoke for longer have a higher risk? We want to see some plausibility. So the guy that you're looking at with his implausibly large fish. We would like to see that smoking is plausibly connected to lung cancer and, and that seems to make sense. We're going to breathe lung, we're going to breathe smoking into our lungs. It's reasonable that the lungs are the things that are damaged. So that association does seem plausible. We want it to be consistent with other things. So we know that cigarette smoke contains carcinogens. The fact that having breathed it in, the, the tissues that are touched are the ones that get cancer is consistent with experimental evidence from the rest, of, the rest of what human beings know. And so on my little picture, I've got ships falling off the side of the, road, uh, the, ships falling off the, side of the world. Uh, and it's difficult to think that your ship is being lost because it's fallen off the side of the world if, if you've got lots of evidence the world is round. So your, your explanation for why you're losing ships is not consistent with the rest of scientific knowledge. We would like the association between cause and disease to be subject to experiment. If we cut down how much someone smokes, do we see a cut down in their risk? So if you intervene to make a change to the exposure, do you make a change to the experience of the disease? And finally, Hill puts in, um, puts in place the bottom right hand here, uh, and you can see Tintin encountering the Yeti uh, next to a picture of Bigfoot. And what Bradford Hill's getting at by this analogy concept is it, we, know that, uh, we know that people who breathe dust get damaged lungs. We know people who get tuberculosis get damaged lungs. So the idea that people who smoke get damaged lungs is... is analogous with other things that we know affect human beings. So it's a, a, a brief sort of run-through of those ideas, and, I, and Ruth will pick them up in the second half of this, this session. But it's, it's, it's useful to remember, and I, I keep, I've, I've said this sort of two or three times, these are not absolute rules. These are not absolute criteria like Koch. But they are guidelines for, for building a case against the prosecution. And reassuringly that smoking is quite a good example because pretty much all of the boxes have got ticked at one stage or another, but Ruth will go into that in a bit more detail. So Hill gives us one enormous contribution to science, medical research already. He's taught us how to think about complex diseases. He's thought, taught us how to think about diseases like cancer, which is a really helpful thing. So Bradford Hill's second contribution, so he makes three contributions... Bradford Hill's second contribution is the design of the modern clinical trial. So in the mid-20th mid century, in the 1940s, tuberculosis is still a real problem. 
And it's only in 1943, I think, that an American scientist working at Rutgers isolates streptomycin, the drug that would ultimately be used against TB. And the British government managed to persuade the Americans to part with enough doses of streptomycin for 55 people. I mean, a bit cash-strapped at the time. So we get 55 doses of streptomycin, and this very limited supply helps Bradford Hill and his colleagues to justify a clinical trial that's a little bit different from what has gone before. So he does a number of things that we would now see as, as, as essential. He carefully selects his cohort. So he doesn't, he doesn't test the drug on anyone with TB. He tests the drug on young people, aged 15 to 30. He tests the drug, so he selects a group that he thinks will benefit. He selects people who've got bilateral TB, so TB in both lungs. He selects people whose TB is of recent origin, so the lungs are not scarred. And he selects people whose TB is proven to be connected to bacterial infection exactly the sort of people who are likely to benefit from streptomycin. So he's, he's selecting his cohort based on what he believes he understands about the drug he's about to give. He, do, he blinds the study. So the assessment of whether the patients are responding is done by a chest x-ray, and the medics who examine the chest x-rays are not told whether the person, those x-ray they're looking at, is got streptomycin or got the control. So they, do, they don't know who's results they're looking at. He controls the clinical trials. So he says, okay, we, these, these people we would normally give hospital bed rest to. So we're going to take 52 people and give them bed rest. We're going to take 55 people and give them bed rest plus streptomycin. So it's a controlled, clinical, it's a controlled trial. But the last, inter- the last thing he does, which is, which is probably the thing this trial is remembered for, is that he randomizes so instead of allowing the nurses and the doctors to choose who gets, goes in which arm, instead of, allowing, instead of sort of bringing them in one at a time and going one for the drug, one for the control, one for the drug, one for the control, sort of alternating, he says, no, it's got to be completely random. And the reason for that is it's quite hard sometimes for people to not feel human. So when some guy, 29, looking fit as healthy, comes in and you think, well... He might do okay anyway, so we'll just bung him in the control arm. Well, you get a young girl in with a baby and you think, oh, she needs every, you know, we really want to look after this one. We'll bung him in the streptomycin arm. We'll give him the drug or however it's done. But you can see the problem there is that the criteria you're using for human pity are exactly the sort of criteria that might affect whether the patient responds to the drug. And so he completely randomises it. And the reason you've got an envelope in front of you is I'm going to try and mimic the process now. So there are a bunch of envelopes lying around the, the, the bar. And in each... So what, what happened to the patients as they came in to be part of this trial is that they were handed an envelope, essentially. And the envelope had in it, had written on it just a code number. And inside the envelope was the allocation to whether they would get streptomycin or, or the control treatment. And inside your envelopes, you've got a card telling you whether you're streptomycin or control, and whether you've recovered or not recovered. And you should also find in your envelope a tiddlywink. And what I'd like you to do is grab, grab the nearest envelope, feel free to participate in the trial many times, if there's more than one envelope, and bring your tiddlywink to the bar and drop it in the, and drop it in the pint glass with the, associated, with, with the matching card. There's some, there's, there's some data corrupting going on here. So, so we've, I suspect that we've not got all our patients in quite yet, and there's a certain amount of data handling issues going on with tiddlywinks in the wrong jar. My, apolo- my apologies if your tiddlywink is missing. Some of them appear not to have survived the journey down from the hospital. We'll, we'll, we'll assume that we've got all points in, although, as you can see, quite a lot of chasing needs to go on to, to find out, to find people, and I think Ruth will know that that's a problem. <laughs> And, and quite a lot of careful data handling happened to make sure people aren't, re- uh, aren't, aren't falsely assigned. And you, some of the people at the bar will have seen that some of the tiddlywinks wound up in the wrong, in the wrong containers. But the result of the trial, the result of um, Hill's trial was ultimately a success. He was able to prove to a statistically significant result that people given streptomycin suffered approximately 7% deaths 
whereas people just given bed rest were suffering 29% deaths. And the result is statistically significant, and, and some of my friends from the, the Statistics in Medicine unit were reanalyzing the data the other day as a prelude to doing a summer school next week. Uh, and st we still think it was a statistically significant result, so that's reassuring. But that, that idea, that insistence on randomization to make sure that you're not selecting patients in a way that might influence the outcome of the trial for some other reason is really important. And although, we do, although sometimes we would interfere in that process a little to make sure, for example, that we have the same number of men and women in both arms, the idea of randomization is still very much with us, and it's still very much something the MRC contributed and something that Bradford Hill contributed. So I said Bradford Hill was responsible for three really important pieces of medical research, and the third one was he recruited uh, this gentleman here. He's on the, uh, he's on the, the sixth sheet. Uh, the, 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 picture is a, the picture is of uh, Richard Doll, rather older than he was when he joined Bradford Hill's study. But Bradford Hill set up the British Doctors' Survey, which together with Richard Doll and then ultimately Richard Petto, would follow British doctors and their health and correlate that to smoking for nearly 50 years as part, and, and really demonstrate you know, pretty convincingly that smoking and lung cancer are uh, strongly linked. And his work on that is, is really terribly important. And his work is linked to Oxford. So that's, that's me satisfying the other criteria of my job, which was to link this to Oxford University. His work is linked to Oxford because Richard Doll was an Oxford scientist. Richard Doll is commemorated by the building up the that, that bears his name, the Richard Doll Building. Where, where Ruth works and the Cancer Epidemiology Unit work. Uh, and his work is continued to this day by Richard Petto, who's led and finished off the remainder of that, that sort of smoking and lung cancer work and continues with it, uh, uh, looking at cohorts in other countries. Richard Petto is joined by Valerie Beryl, who has led the Million Women Study, where Cancer Research UK have funded a study of 1.3 million women and looked at their, their health outcomes and, their and the risk factors that might be leading to those health outcomes. So that work still very much continues, and that's an excellent opportunity for me to stop and hand over. So thank you very much, Martin. I hope you can hear me right at the back over there by the telephone box. Great. Okay, well, I, um, I work in a building right next door to Martin up the hill, and I've got my colleague, Kirsten Peary, with me, who leads the smoking work in the Million Women Study. And in some respects, um, you could say that we're down the family tree from Bradford Hill and Richard Dole and Valerie Beryl, um, and I guess we can only, only aspire to do a proportion of their amazing work. Um, but that they leave, leave us, uh, well, Valerie is still there and Richard's still there, but they leave us with an amazing legacy. Um, I'm going to talk to you about some of that work and some of the evidence. Um, so firstly, you, um, well, Martin's already introduced it, but you probably heard or may have heard of, of the British Doctors' Study. Um, and I'm going to talk about the Million Women's Study. And in fact, some of you might be participating in the Million Women's Study. It's a study of 1.3 million women from the United Kingdom. And then up the hill on the Old Road campus, Oxford University also leads work in the EPIC study, which is a European-wide study of 500,000 people. And also we, we're doing a lot of work on UK Biobank, which again, some of you might um, yourselves have been invited to participate in or be participating in. So I should say at this point that, that all of the work that we do and I'm going to talk about would absolutely not be possible without participation from loads of the general public. Um, and that, that's the kind of fundamental for everything I'm going to say today day. My passion and what drives Kirsten and a whole cohort of people up the hill is to understand more about the causes of cancer. So it's great that I get to be part of tonight. And really, the reason we want to understand more about the causes of cancer is fundamentally we're trying to learn how to prevent it and we're trying to learn how to treat it. And Kirsten and I are particularly passionate about modifiable causes of cancer. And that's really uh, what the Medical Research Council and Cancer Research UK are funding us to look at up the hill. And so smoking is a very high priority for us, and that's what I'm going to talk mostly about but we're also doing a lot of work on um, alcohol obesity diet um, how your reproductive characteristics affect your risk of cancer the title of, of the program is coffee and cancer and i've just opened some emails today with some results from the epic study on coffee and cancer and um, so our work's really diverse but it can be pinned back down to richard dole's passion and um, that lives on in us to, to identify uh, modifiable causes of cancer so those of you in reach of a table 
and there's some over here and there's, I think there's a pack at the back and over on these tables around here. If you could open Martin's handout with the photographs to page five. Don't worry if you can't see a handout because I'm going to talk through everything. But if you can see a handout, find Martin's page five. Now, in an envelope inside your plastic wallet... If you have a look for a plastic wallet, an A4 plastic wallet with a see-through cover, there's an envelope in there, and inside is a pack of cards, a pack of playing cards. So these are limited edition uh, Medical Research Council centenary playing cards. And on each is um, a piece of evidence that we're going to talk about. And as I say, don't worry if you haven't got sight of them, because I'm going to talk it through um, as we go. And I'm just going to move the microphone so I can have my hands free. So as Martin said, Bradford Hill has left us with these criteria and they're drummed into us at medical school and they're drummed into us when we do our epidemiological training. Now, as epidemiologists, we're working on very, very large studies of people and the reason we work on very large studies of people is that we're trying to get at really reliable evidence. We're trying to get at data that we can come and talk to groups like this, we can talk to the media about evidence that's really, really strong and really reliable. But... Ultimately, our position is quite conservative and we're very wary of sharing with the public information about what we think are the causes of cancer, be it maybe speculation about broccoli and colon cancer, about coffee and prostate cancer. We're very wary about talking to the public until we feel like we've got a huge picture of evidence from lots of epidemiology and lots of other studies and we fall back continuously on these criteria from Hill. So let's go through them again. So Martin said firstly that in order to be sure that something causes of can- cancer, maybe coffee causes prostate cancer, we have to be convinced that the evidence of an association is strong, that we're seeing a really strong um, association. Now, Martin mentioned that if you sp- you might have a ninefold increased risk of lung cancer. Well, Kirsten, and in her analyses in the Million Women study, um, in your card number one, if you've got sight of your pack of playing cards, you might want to put it on Mr. Strong. And what I'm showing here, if you can't see it, is that in the Million Women study, uh, we've shown actually that if you're a heavy smoker and you're having 20 cigarettes a day or more, then you've not got a nine-fold increased risk of having lung cancer, you've got a 36-fold increased risk of lung cancer. So your risk of having lung cancer um, is, is increased by more than 3,000%. Now, just to put this in context, in epidemiology, this is like the holy grail of an association in terms of strength. Mostly, my day-to-day job involves working on hormones and obesity and hormone replacement therapy. And for those, we're looking at a two-fold increase. So a 200% increase. That's as strong as it gets for us normally. So for, for smoking, it's off the scale. So we've got a th- more than a 3,000 increase risk for smoking. Smoking for us is fantastic. It's, it's a really, really strong association. Now, last year in October, it was the 100 Last year was the 100th anniversary of Richard Dole's birth and Richard Pito and Valerie Beryl, to commemorate it, invited scientists from all of the continents on Earth apart from Antarctica to gather. And we had two days of fantastic talks from people from a whole host of countries and again and again and again from different study designs, from different populations, from urban, from rural, um, from rich, from poor, from developed, from non-developed... Um, So, yeah, we had this amazing meeting last year, and really what it served to demonstrate beautifully was what Martin was saying about consistency. For smoking, more than any other risk factor, we have data from loads of different settings, from loads of different populations, showing us the things time and time again that smoking is associated with risk. Now, Richard Pito and Valerie have often said that if women smoke like men, they will die like men. But for many years, it was believed that smoking didn't affect women in the same way as it affected men. But actually, the premise of most of the studies was wrong, and it's only been in the last decade that people like Kirsten have probably been able to evaluate the risks in women. Um, And looking at women who started smoking, you might, might be aware that the epidemic of smoking really peaked in the 1950s, and in men in the late 40s, rising to huge levels in the Second World War. Um, And women really started to smoke in large numbers um, during the Second World War and just after. So it's only now that we've got women who've been smoking for all of their life uh, at very high levels that we're able to properly study the risks in. So the Million Women Study asked detailed questions on smoking, and they showed that the risks in women who've smoked large amounts are exactly the same as risks in men. So again, another piece of, of evidence supporting consistency. 
Now, one of the intellectual but also scientific challenges about cancer is that most cancers are multi-causal. So it's not the case that we have a single cause um, associated with developing cancer. So it's not the case that I can eat broccoli and protect myself from colorectal cancer. It's not the case that I'm obese and therefore I've got definitely going to develop breast cancer. It's, it's multi-causal. And I think this is both challenging but also uh, for us demonstrates the strength of having really large studies where people have very kindly given us a whole range of information allowing us to really untease the results. So I've got on card number three, for those of you who can see it, I'm just showing you the association of smoking and other diseases. And so we see a 60-fold increased risk in the heavy smokers of emphysema. Um, and similarly, we know that smoking is also associated with heart disease. So in the Million Women study, as well as a lot of the other studies being run in Oxford and funded by the Medical Research Council, we're able to look not just at cancer, but other major causes of death and morbidity. Now, for those of you who can see it, look at cards number four. There's several cards number four. And they're all of them associated with the TARDIS. And really just wanted to say a few more words about Richard Doll. So we've had a little bit of history already, um, but with, faced with this huge smoking epidemic in the 1940s and 50s, the government decided that they had to invest. And they gave Bradford Hill a very large pot of money, and he employed Richard Doll as his research fellow. And they did a case control study. So they went to the hospitals, and they picked up people with lung cancer, and they picked up other people who didn't have lung cancer, and they simply asked them, how much do you smoke? And overwhelmingly, a little bit like pots in a jar, you could see that the people who were developing lung cancer were much, much more likely to smoke. Now, before they did this study, there was a general feeling that perhaps it was air pollution causing these high rates of lung cancer. And Richard Doll himself, he thought that it was tar being used on the roads originally. That was his view of what might be causing lung cancer. And it seems radical now to us that people didn't have a sense of the harms that might come from tobacco and smoking. But, th but they really didn't. And so... They did, they did this case control study which showed smoking was important and Richard Doll and Bradford Hill were convinced. But they maintained there was around a huge air of scepticism um, and the tobacco companies were obviously very against it, but not just the tobacco companies, but the, the establishment of as a whole and the high, very, very high numbers of doctors, for example, more than 90% of doctors were smoking. So against this position, Richard Doll developed a completely new type of study what he did was to invite loads of the general population, like you who've come tonight, to, to give him lots of information about their characteristics. And he followed them up. He did this with doctors who he hoped he could keep track of and who would be compliant. The doctors, 34,000 of them, gave him loads of information in 1951. And they followed them up for 40 and then 50 years. This is the British doctor study. And this is what Martin was talking about. Um, and it's through this perspective study that we've got really nice temporal evidence. We're absolutely sure that the smoking preceded the disease. And it seems really obvious to say that now, but that's the bedrock of all of the research that I'm doing and all of the research that Kirsten's doing, is that we ask people in Biobank, we ask people in the Million Women Study, what are you doing? What are you eating? What drugs are you taking? How many children have you had? And then we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we follow them up through the cancer registries, and we accrue more and more cancers. Finally, we can look to start to unravel the causes of cancer. And these studies take lots of time, they take lots of volunteers, and they take lots of money. But with that, we can be really secure in understanding the temporal relationship of cause and then effect. Okay, so we're moving on to card five. If you've got your packs and anybody can see a card, I'm going to show you at the front card five. This is the dose-response relationship. Quite simply... If you're exposed to more of something, if you're more obese, you're drinking more alcohol, you're smoking more, does that lead to an increased, a higher risk of the disease? And for smoking, definitely it does. We've talked about this already, but if you're smoking six cigarettes a day, then you have a tenfold increased risk of lung cancer. But if you're smoking 20 cigarettes a day, then you have a 36-fold increased risk of lung cancer. And so that's one of the things we're looking for when we're trying to t wonder about whether we're ready to talk to the press, talk to the government, talk to advisory agencies. What about dose-response relationships? But it's not just about amount. It's about what the lady was raising very nicely earlier about duration. So you might hypothesize, you might think for smoking that people who have smoked for 10 years might have a lower risk than people who have smoked for 20 years or 30 years. And evidence, Kirsten's evidence from the Million Women study has shown us really nicely that duration of smoking is really important. 
So if you start smoking in your teens and you smoke until you're 75, 16% of those people will die from lung cancer. However, the really good news is that if you stop when you're 50, this large study has allowed us to see that if you stop when you're 50, rather than 16% of you dying of lung cancer, only 6% of you will die. That's compared to about 0.5% of the general population. So a really big difference. Now, if you had started in your teens, as a lot of people do, and then you stopped in your 30s, then your risk is right, 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 right down. It's around 1%. And so this evidence, this dose-response evidence of time smoking has, A, told us loads about um, smoking being important for cancer, but more importantly for for me as an epidemiologist, it's given us a really nice message um, that people who stop smoking can uh, reduce their risk. Okay, let's move on. For those people who can see page 5 and Martin's lovely picture of a fish about biological plausibility. Now, in your playing card, actually, it's, it's, it's box number six, actually. In your playing cards, I'm showing, for the people who can't see, I'm showing the, the respiratory tract, which you're all aware of, your nose, your mouth, going down the back of your throat, your larynx, your, um, into your lungs. Now, we've looked in the Million Women study. We've obviously done a lot of work on lung cancer, but the cancer registries also give us lots of information on other cancers. So we've looked at cancers of the mouth and cancers of the trachea um, and the larynx and we find increased risks of cancer of all of those with numbers of cigarettes smoked and so Kirsten's analyses show that if you have 20 cigarettes a day your risk of having cancer of any of these airway um, sites is is at least sixfold Uh, And again, we see a dose-response relationship. So the more you smoke, the more chance you've got of having these cancers of not just the lung, but your nose and all the way down into your lung. Now, um, for those of you who can see Martin's lovely pictures, and for those of you who can't, I'll describe it. Martin's next lovely picture, you may remember, is about coherence. And there's a picture of ships falling off the world. And, And this is about, before we make a decision that we really think an association is causal. We try and look at the whole picture of evidence, not just the epidemiology, which I'm mostly talking about, but also what the experimental evidence is showing us. And for those of you with the cards, card number seven is a little diagram. And the detail's not important. What is important is that for smoking, scientists have demonstrated that there are at least 71 carcinogens in tobacco. And now that they've been able to pinpoint exactly what quite a few of those do, and they damage the code inside you, the DNA inside you, by causing it to break and causing the code to change. And they've seen for for quite a few of those exactly how that then affects your risk of cancer. So for smoking, we've got a lot of evidence that um, the association a lot of evidence for coherence and we're really really sure but not just for smoking for other things we're starting a lot of our work in Oxford is trying to explore the mechanisms behind some risk factors so we're looking at obesity and trying to understand why does obesity affect risk of cancer and it affects a lot of um, hormones that circulate to do with inflammation um, and a lot of other things that are happening in your body so we're taking blood samples from people in the million women studying in epic and having a look at things like obesity and looking at what happens in the blood Okay, we're nearly there. Uh, For those of you who can see Martin's page five, we're seeing a man now who's holding a test tube, which is for experiment. And I've also already described to you some of the really nice evidence we've got that if you stop smoking, your risk reverts back down to what it used to be after about 30 to 40 years. And one of Richard Dole's, and I guess by legacy, Bradford Hill's major contributions has not just been to the field of epidemiology and the new studies and these huge, large prospective studies, but it's really been um, to reduce the burden of public um, health right around the world. And it's estimated that Richard Dole's work, which has directly led to a huge fall in smoking and eventually to government policy banning smoking, um, has already prevented millions of deaths. And in the next century, with smoking becoming increasingly prevalent in developed countries, it's going to have a massive impact in reducing risk and we think in the next 30 to 40 years most of the lives saved will be due to adults quitting smoking and then because of the lag time from starting smoking as a youngster to having disease we think that maybe in the later part of this century that we're going to be starting to see we hope lots of lives saved by persuading children and young adults not to start smoking so that's pretty much all I wanted to say but really just to to say that I think we're hugely grateful 
for what Richard Dole left us with. He had a massive uh, interest in training scientists. Um, he had a massive interest in making sure our studies were really rigorous and that we didn't speak until we really were sure of our evidence. And that remains with us today in Oxford. And so, as I say, we're still fantastically interested in understanding more about a whole range of lifestyle characteristics and diet um, and blood hormones and infections and trying to really understand how they cause cancer uh, the exact nature of the relationship so we can start doing things towards prevention and treatment right so thank you very much for coming this evening uh, i hope we've left you with a new name to celebrate um, Austin Bradford Hill's contribution has been enormous and we, we don't hear enough about him. And his work is linked very closely to the work that con continues to go on in Oxford. But I hope that when you go home you'll have in your mind the idea, if, even if you can't remember what they are, that there are nine criteria and the next time that someone tries to persuade you that broccoli causes or you should coffee causes or fudge causes or whatever else they're trying to claim, you've now got some standards to hold them to and, 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 and maybe justify, make them justify themselves a little more closely than sometimes they do. So thank you very much for listening. I'm sure we could take, take some questions and thank you very much for coming. I understand why Smoking was selected. It seemed to be perhaps the easy, easiest one of all in, uh, in the 20th century. But it does seem to me it's not only it's air pollution, I mean, totality, except the intensity of it. So is the intensity, uh, is it the intensity or the duration, or is it the amount of air that is sucked in with the, uh, with the t tobacco um, smoke? So there are, you know, myriad factors, and the fact is if you eliminate some of those, you, I mean, you can't take them all into account in each each trial patient, shall we say, the variations of those can be very large. So is it smoking a long time, a little, or smoking a lot for a short period of time, or intermittently, etc., etc.? I think all of those things you've just raised are, are really interesting and actually what we're trying to get more data to look at. But I think that what one of Richard Pito's contributions is to be just what, do what you just said. And the last Million Women Study questionnaire went out with a whole page of questions just on smoking. And they asked what you said. They asked about intensity. How many do you smoke a day? They asked about regularity of smoking. And they asked about, you know, right through your life, was there a period when you smoked and then you stopped and then you smoked and when you stopped? And looking at the results from all of those different questions, it appears to be for smoking that it's about both the amount you smoked, the intensity, and the duration. So if you smoked a s small amount through your life, you've got an elevated risk. And if you smoked for a short period, but a huge amount, then you've got an elevated risk, and they might be similar. But the product of intensity and duration you know, is, is overwhelming. But I think you know, the air pollution question that y you mentioned is it's really interesting because that was you know, what was the, the theory for lung cancer at the time in the 50s, but there's still a big interest in air pollution and people looking at air pollution and heart disease, for example. But what we found is that one of the challenges for air pollution research is that it's what we call confounded by socioeconomic status. So air pollution and your general exposure is really linked to where your home location is. And your home location next to a major road is really influenced by your socioeconomic status. And if you just think about the area where you live and the main roads passing through and the desirability of living right on the A40 or the M40 or the Oxford Ring Road versus living in a nice, quiet sort of um, cul-de-sac away, then it's, it's, it's really very, very difficult to untangle it. And I think a lot of the results we're finding for heart disease and air pollution are fascinating. We're looking more into the coherence of the evidence from the uh, sort of experimental work, but it's very hard to tease out to what extent that's to do with other associated factors. As regards smoking, there are other factors too, and you could, I mean, the test on those people who have been breathing in um, high silicone um, rich environments in, in hard rock mining and things like that, or near. Um, pollution from a main road or diesel or anything like like that. So, yeah. so yes, what what you you've need? You've got a big problem. You're absolutely right. And what you need, and one of the reasons for having to do these enormous studies, 1.3 million women based up the hill, is that 
you really have to be able to separate out these factors. And for something as strong as smoking, the only way to do it is to what we do call stratify. So then if, say, in silica work, you need a cohort of people working in a similar industry to silica workers, but not exposed to silica. And you need to be able to compare smokers in those with smokers with silica. So do you see what I mean? You need to have very large numbers to be able to do what you're saying. Just to feed back on that um, the issue of multi-factors and pollution and so on, there was recently... Um, uh, you know, some warning about pregnant women not using chemicals in the home, for instance. And that's something I've always been interested in, me and my friends. And we all, I always thought they talk about, to you know, detoxing, which I go, well, what do you mean? What about your, you know, your lungs, your skin, your liver, everything in your body is detoxing. So that's just a nonsense term to me. But what I am interested in is how, with your approach or the approach of epidemiology, how would you go about finding the interaction of different chemicals, which is modern life, basically. You think about what you put on your armpits, you know, preservatives. I mean, I've got a fairly purist attitude, but really it's, you know, it's not really sustainable, um, <laughs> you know, in, in reality, because I can't check all the chemicals that go into my food. It's not possible. But in an ideal world, I'd like to do without chemicals but in a sense that's complete nonsense too because you know chemicals are necessary so my question is really how are you going to find out or is this something that's going to happen in 100 years time where we can differentiate you know the effects of different interaction of chemicals and you know if one woman uses deodorant and you know and something else with it no, I think that's a question we get asked a lot and is really, really important. And this idea that chemicals in things we're exposed to almost all day, every day, um, might affect our risk of important things like cancer and moreover that they might interact and have different effects. And how do we tackle that? Well, I think we're only just beginning to get to grips with that. Um, and the evidence we have so far doesn't suggest a big worry. But, but the way that we're really tackling it is working in concert with the experimental scientists who can individually test these compounds in separate models. But in the Million Women study, every time there's a new concern about a new exposure, we evaluate it and decide whether to put it on the next questionnaire. And um, so it's kind of a dynamic set of questions that we can feed into. So in the last questionnaire, for example, we've asked about underarm deodorant and we've asked about which side do you put it on and how regularly do you put it on. Now, one of the problems is that these exposures are ubiquitous and it's even with 1.3 million women, we might not find that many women who aren't using underarm deodorant. And that presents us with a big challenge, and we may have to wait a long while to get enough women um, from both groups to, to get cancer. So I think, yeah, th there's a lot of ways we're trying to tackle it. We've got another study where we're looking at, we've asked about organic food intake. And you'd think that, um, although that's a really crude question, you'd hope that with enough numbers, if you ask who uses regularly organic food versus not, that if there was some association with cancer risk, we'd expect to be able to see it in the next 10 years, although it's a very crude question. And then if you saw a difference, then you could start asking more detailed questions to try and get down to the level of pesticide or, or what exactly it is. Is it something in milk? Is it something in vegetables? But at the moment, the results we've got for organic foods are completely null. And the other thing we've been doing is looking at major diet groups, so vegans, vegetarians, meat eaters and fish eaters, because again, you can hypothesize that some of their exposures are radically different, partly due to their general lifestyle choices, but also due to some of the contaminants in milk and meat versus contaminants in vegetables. So I think that we have to come at it from lots and lots of different perspectives, and it is really difficult. Yes, you, you quoted relative rate risks. Uh, what are the absolute risks? I wouldn't be bothered about a 60-fold increase in something that only affected one person in a million. No, I, th I think that that's a really good question. Well, so I mainly work on breast cancer, to be honest, and uh, I think in breast cancer it's quite startling. So the absolute risk of breast cancer for me is that one in, one in eight women in here will get breast cancer in your lifetime. Um, and that's about 100 people per 100,000 people per year. And for lung cancer, for absolute rates, the ones that I'm most familiar with is the statistic that by the time you're 75, 0.5%, so less than one of us in here, on average, will be developing lung cancer. Whereas if you're just talking about lifetime smokers, then out of 100 people, which is double the size of this room, then about 16 people will die of lung cancer. So for this size of this room, maybe eight people would die of lung cancer compared to with less than one person. So absolute rates of the cancers that we're studying, the most common cancers, are in general about 100 per 100,000 per year. But in understandable terms, that means that 
for something like breast cancer, it's about one in eight, and it's probably similar for lung cancer. And for prostate cancer, it's about one in 12 men over their lifetime will get prostate cancer. Can you tell us what is the evidence linking lung cancer with exposure to environmental tobacco smoke? Yeah, well, Kirsten has been doing a lot of work on passive smoking. Uh, do, do, you want, do you want to comment? I mean, it's, it's a really big question and something we've been trying to get more information on. Okay, so I haven't really worked on environmental tobacco smoke and lung cancer, but there is a lot of evidence, and there's, most of the studies are quite old now as well, but there seems to be some increase in risk, but what that magnitude is, we don't know, because the problem with passive smoking is it's much more difficult to evaluate. Like, people know if they're a smoker or if they're not a smoker, but how many hours a day are you exposed to tobacco smoke? Yeah, so, so passive smoking is very difficult to ask by questionnaires because you have different exposure. You have workplace exposure, um, home exposure. All the studies are basically getting very different results. But they do, I mean, the general consensus is there does seem to be an increase, but it's nothing like um, the increase in risk you'd get from actively smoking. So there is no real evidence? Uh, no, there's plenty of evidence. It's just that they've asked in very different ways. You couldn't really quantify what that increase would be. But it does seem to be an increase of, uh, I think it's around 40% or 20% increase in risk. So, But, I mean, it's difficult to pinpoint. You'd have to put quite broad confidence intervals on that because we can't, be, we can't accurately say that if you are exposed to two cigarettes per day for eight years, then you will have this increase in risk because we just, we just don't know how to evaluate their exposure in the same way as we do for active smoking. I think one of the things that we've done a little bit very recently in the Million Women study is measure something in people's blood called cotinine. So if you smoke, or then you have very high levels of cotinine, which is a product of nicotine in your body. But equally, if you're exposed to environmental tobacco smoke, then you have low levels of cotinine in your blood. If you have no exposure at all, you have zero, so you don't make it naturally. Um, so it's quite expensive to do these assays, and we're just um, looking at ways in the lab of looking at low levels quite sensitively. But I think that that, as Kirsten says, it's really hard to measure passive exposure because it varies a lot during the day. It varies by the environment. It varies by the ventilation. But if we've got a biomarker, as we call them, something we can measure in the blood, um, like cotinine, I think that that will help. Um, and we need more evidence on it in terms of uh, helping with legislation. We've already, you know, there's no smoke in here tonight, and that's partly because of concerns about passive smoking. Particulates or um, other chemicals apart from... Well, I, I think that the evidence for smoking is so consistent across so many different settings and so many people exposed to so many other things but which are hugely varied that I think we can quite confidently say it is smoking. But that doesn't mean that there aren't exactly, as you say, there aren't other risk factors for lung cancer. People who've never smoked, never been exposed to environmental smokes can still develop lung cancer. I was just going to say, the, uh, what, if, what influence does, um, I don't know, gene typing, for instance, having all this? Because you get people who, I know, fairly stupid people, I would say, who say things like, I've smoked for 60 years, I've never had any ill effect. And sure enough, they're sitting there, they look healthy. And other people, you know, six cigarettes a day, and, and yet they're getting lung cancer. Do, is there any kind of work on... Yeah. Well, I think that that's, that's really interesting, and that's something that... We've been doing a lot of work on in the last five years, since Richard Dole's death, actually. But one of my main topics is molecular epidemiology, and that's exactly that. It's looking at people's underlying inherited genetic susceptibility to cancer. And so, as you say, you may get people who've smoked all of their life, and they may not get lung cancer. And that could just be chance. But there's also the case that we know now for... Uh, say for breast cancer, that there's 50 things that we commonly inherit that can change our risk by, you know, as much as um, twofold when you put them all together. And so for lung cancer, we know that there are different types of lung cancer and that smoking is most strongly associated with some types and less strongly associated with other types. So particularly in women, for some reason, then ad lung adenocarcinomas often you may not have smoked, but unfortunately you may have inherited a, mu a variation, a change in one of your genes, um, and that does increase your risk of lung cancer quite, quite a lot. So I think for, yeah, for all of the cancers that we're studying in Oxford, 
in a lot of depth, which is lung cancer and breast cancer and prostate cancer. In the last five years, what we know about your underlying natural susceptibility to developing these has gone up hugely. Most of what we've learned are about things that we all commonly carry. So 50% so of us in this room might carry one of these inherited variations, but it affects your risk by a really tiny amount. And it's only if you're unlucky enough to carry 10 or 20 or 30 of these very common changes that then your risk is, is starting to reach a sort of substantial and important level that might affect your risk of screening. Um, and we're trying to put together in Oxford the all of the things we talked about, like smoking and alcohol and diet and obesity and reproductive characteristics with the genetic evidence to try and see if there's any association. So are some people, just because of what they inherit, more susceptible to the effects of alcohol or obesity? Um, and I think that there's a lot more work to be done and it needs huge studies to, to unpick it, but it's a really interesting question. Thank you. Is there a possibility then that grandparents who smoked a lot may have some input, genetic input, into the risk? Well, I think you're touching on something slightly different, but something that's really interesting is that there's been a lot of work on the genetics, the inherited disposition to become um, addicted to things like nicotine and alcohol. And so that might not be directly what you're asking, but, but definitely that certain tendencies are somewhat inherited. And they're not prescriptive so just because your mother or your father was a heavy smoker and seemed to be very dependent on nicotine it doesn't mean that you're naturally yourself definitely going to have the same tendencies but they've when they've done large studies looking at how much people smoke they can certainly and, and how much people drink they can certainly see and have found genes that affect your likelihood of, of smoking but they do so by a very small amount so on a population level they increase the chance that you're likely to be a heavy smoker but I think we couldn't really say that you know I'm a, I'm a smoker because of my genetic background. It just makes it more likely, perhaps, that I'm going to be addicted to something like nicotine. Yes, so the question was, is there any evidence for epigenetic changes? So these are these are changes. We have, um, until about 20, 10 years ago, we used to think that everything you inherited from your parents was in your genetic code, your DNA, and it was about how that code was. Um, but more recently, we've realized that you can inherit other signals from your parents, and that's to do with the way that this DNA is turned off and on. And so you have these things called methyl groups, but we don't need to worry about that. But there's different ways that your genes can be turned off and on, and those signals are also inherited from your parents. And uh, they're not only inherited from your parents, but they're affected by things that happen to you during your life. And so, for example, there is research that shows that smokers have different turn, turning off and turning on of certain genes. So it's not just what happens, what they're already carrying in terms of susceptibility to developing cancer. It's that some of their um, well-behaving genes might be turned off or turned on um, during their life because of exposure to tobacco, because of obesity, because of a whole variety of things. And this is a really growing field. And I think maybe in the next five to 10 years, and we're going to have studies that can look across all of the entire genetic code in your body and understand how it's turned off and turned on and how factors that we're exposed to are influencing that. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch.